Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Julia Chatley in New York. It's fantastic to have you with us this Friday and no better time to say TGIF. A painful week for investors as assets sell off, stocks, bonds, crypto, all losing their froth. The $2 trillion question now is, where is the trough? That's just what the stock market lost this week, that $2 trillion for now. All I offer is a potential market liftoff. Look at that. Here's your stock market futures higher after a torturous Thursday that saw the Dow close below 30,000 for the first time in more than a year. The Nasdaq, the tech-heavy sector, sliding more than 4%. Europe... Let me give you a look at what we're seeing there. Also higher in the session today so far. Also giving you a look at what happened in the Asia session. Look at Japan. The Nikkei falling more than one and a half percent and the yen easing from two week highs after a dovish display by the BOJ. The Bank of Japan bucked the central bankers trend, holding interest rates steady at rock bottom levels, even as the United Kingdom, the Swiss and the US central banks all hiked this week. But also the Bank of Japan committing to further government bond purchases to hold those borrowing costs down, a.k.a. no setting of the QE sun in the land of the rising sun. The Fed, however, and of course, using higher borrowing costs to try and cool pricing pressures faced by consumers. But the knock-on effect is a slowing economy already. In terms of data this week, we've seen a contraction in retail sales with particular weakness in autos. A 14% plunge in housing starts, so you can read that as new residential construction, and the biggest weekly jump in mortgage rates since the late 1980s. Now, despite the warning signs, President Biden says, don't panic, recession is not inevitable. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, great to have you with us. Very little in life is inevitable. But if you look at the Atlanta Fed survey, they're sort of suggesting that the U.S. economy already might be in recession this quarter to negative or zero prints of growth. What do you think, Christine? We can't have it always. You've got to cool pricing pressures. The danger is you slow the economy too much. Yeah. And we just don't know how this is going to turn out. Mm. Right. And I think that's what the president's point is here is that, you know, it's there's no roadmap for this in six days, six months sometime next year. Could there be a recession? Sure. Those risks are rising, but we just don't know for sure. And the president points out when he says uh, it's not inevitable. First of all, the president told the Associated Press in a 30 minute interview yesterday. But he said, secondly, we're in a stronger position than any nation in the world to overcome this inflation, at least on gasoline prices. He's right. The U.S. in terms of the industrialized world does have a little bit uh, more breathing room in in gas prices than everyone else because of all the subsidies to the U.S. um, energy sector here. But it It's cold comfort to consumers who are, in his words, down. I mean, he points out that people are feeling down two years after pandemic, uh, into pandemic lockdowns and with all of the political um, division in in this country and so many different things going on, including now a hot war in Europe. 
there's just a lot for people to be pessimistic about. The president sort of noting that in his uh, in his interview. Also, that interview pointing out that he sits in an office with a painting of Abraham Lincoln and also FDR close by. Two presidents who also had a really pretty terrible hand of cards dealt to them when they came in into office and had to guide the American people uh, through that. But you know, this is the Fed who's in charge of the inflation scenario at this point, right? It's the Fed that has to get this exactly right. And the markets are telling us they're not quite so sure, at least this morning, though, bouncing back a little bit, a little bit of relief after you're right. You know, I, this week, I'll be happy to put it to bed for sure. Yeah, I'll repeat it again. You raise a very important point, though, and that is what financial markets are telling us. And at the point where we're seeing the level of drops from the highs that we've seen, they're saying, look, this is feeling like recession. And that's before we even get the majority of companies coming out and saying, hey, this is what our numbers are going to look like. And you get analysts revising them lower. So we had a discussion earlier on the show this week that was this happens in two phases. You get the downdraft, you get this uh, intermission period. And then the second act is when you see these companies start to say, now we're really struggling. And we haven't had time for that yet. And so far, corporate balance sheets are very strong. And so far, household balance sheets are very strong. Great point. And so that's one of these reasons why you talk to portfolio managers who say they think we're going to skate by with maybe a tech Nickel recession at some point, but certainly nothing that feels like what we went through in 2008 uh, and 2009. And by the way, that was something that took 10 years to get to get back to. Also, we head into this with the unemployment rate at 3.6 percent. I know we can talk about the technicalities about the labor force participation rate and all we could nerd out forever on on the job market. But the job market is still fundamentally very strong here. So I think we really have to just watch each of these economic reports as they come in and, and see how they go. You know, one thing about the White House. Saying, um, uh, recession is not inevitable. You know, you don't hear, in a way, you have to be the cheerleader in chief as the president of the United States, right? You know, we don't know if there's going to be a recession, but he's trying to point to the strong things about the American economy, especially vis-a-vis the rest of the world, and try to make that point. His critics would say it's tone deaf, but I mean, you can't expect a president, I've never heard a president go out there and say, you know, chicken little, the sky is falling. I mean, that's, that's just not going to happen um, from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Nor should it, to your point, because you can create panic and these things can be self-fulfilling prophecies, as you and I discussed many times during the pandemic as well. I think the missing piece in this, and it goes back to the point that you made about the strength of balance sheets, be they for, for companies or small businesses or for individuals too, it's on average. So you have those that are very strong. You have the weaker companies that get shaken out by this kind of environment. And that's normal. I hate to use the word. The danger is, again... And you and I have discussed it before. It's that lower quartile of people that live paycheck to paycheck. And I worry. even with what we've been through, yeah, they're below average on all of these things. And this is another point of pain. And they suffer most in these downturns. We always come back to it. The safety net isn't really there for those people. And, you know, I'll tell you, the president and his team have been trying to make the point that they had uh, they had strengthened safety nets in Build Back Better. And there are pieces of that that they would like to see enacted that now their critics will say would be inflationary. But they say would protect those the people who are, are, are most exposed to inflation that you can't control, which food and energy prices because of the, of the war in Ukraine. Yeah. Christine Raymond's happy Friday. Me Happy-ish too. Friday. Have a good weekend. <laughs> see, we'll see you next, next week. week. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's move on. Russia's economy and the impact of sanctions in focus now as President Vladimir Putin delivers a speech at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum. The speech, however, was delayed by what the Kremlin called a massive cyber attack. The Russian president came out a few moments ago blasting the United States. 
The US the declared a victory in the Cold War, they won the Cold War. and they later came to think of themselves as God's own messengers on, on planet Earth. Earth who have no duties, and only interests. Commitments, but only and the latter are declared as sacred. It's as if they choose they to ignore that over the, the recent decades, the planet has seen the emergence and increasing prominence of new powerful centers. Each and every center is developing its own political systems, social institutions, implementing their own economic growth models and certainly they have the right to protect them and to ensure their national sovereignty. I'm talking about objective processes. The US declared... And I apologize there for the double translation. We're doing our best. At the same time as that was taking place, one step closer to joining the EU, the European Commission is recommending Ukraine is granted the status of candidate for membership. It's now down to the 27 EU states to decide whether they agree. Matthew Chance joins us now from Brussels. Matthew, great to get your perspective on both of those things. I think let's start with what's taking place among the EU nations, given that's where you are as well. The possibility that very, very quickly Ukraine could be a candidate for EU membership and this would be extraordinarily quickly and as a result of what we're seeing in terms of the war in Ukraine. How will Russia feel about this? Oh, it's a good question, because uh, I think one of the factors, although not the only factor, that has been holding uh, other EU members from granting Ukraine uh, membership status or candidate status for membership is that idea that Russia could react very badly. Um, of course, for the last decade or more, uh, Russia has been fundamentally opposed uh, to the eastward expansion of Western institutions like the European Union and like NATO as well. It, it sees them as a part of the same kind of project to you know, capture Russian lands, uh, to diminish Russia as much as possible. And it's been working against that expansion um, increasingly over the past couple of years. And you've seen that expressed in the invasion of Ukraine that's been uh, underway, the latest iteration of it uh, since February this year. Uh, it, it was cited that, you know, Ukraine wanted to join NATO. That was one of the reasons why Russia decided to send its troops across the border. Now, Obviously, the European Union doesn't pose such a, a military fe- uh, um, threat, although uh, the Kremlin, in the muted response it's given so far uh, to the EU Commission making that recommendation uh, that uh, Ukraine be given uh, candidate status, it did point out that there are increasing ambitions in the European Union for a, a pan-European defensive force. Basically, the Kremlin reaction is you know, very slight at the moment. I expect it to be more fuller. Uh, later on after the EU summit uh, next week. But they said, look, this means, this issue means it's going to get our increased attention. And of course, that's not necessarily a good thing if you're Ukraine or if you're another potential candidate country uh, in the region. That's such a great point too. At least if they are made a candidate nation, though they then unlock access to finance, to different levels of support beyond the symbolism that this moment means, which, as we've discussed, um, is vitally important, I think, in terms of unity. Um, I think we could describe it as exactly what they don't want and didn't intend to happen for Russia's part. I want to talk about Vladimir Putin now and taking the stage at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum. I mean, go back several years, even after the invasion of Crimea, there were still business leaders, international business leaders there. There were still world leaders that would go to that in the following years. The feel of this event, incredibly different. Representation from so-called friendly nations like China and little else, Matthew. 
Yeah, and even the Chinese Premier Xi Jinping has appeared by video conference, um, uh, not, not in person. But yeah, you're right. I mean, look, this was always a major showcase to, uh, for, for Russia's business. Yeah, how you could make money in Russia, how you could, in, the opportunities there which were enormous to invest and make you know, enormous quantities of profit uh, inside that country. And of course, it's always been embraced by Western businesses, no matter what the political backdrop has been. But things have really changed. And I think this is a, a really good showcase of how much the world has changed since Russia's invasion uh, back in February. Because, as I say, Vladimir Putin sharing the stage with video messages from Xi Jinping and from the Kazakh leader. There have been world leaders uh, from European and Western countries uh, on the stage previously. Um, instead of those European delegations, the delegations now are from Venezuela, from the Central African Republic. They've sent their prime minister there. There's a delegation from Cuba. There's even a delegation from the Taliban in Afghanistan. So these are the people that are attending um, uh, this St. Petersburg International Economic Forum this year. And that is starkly different to the, the level of business leaders and Western uh, political representatives that we've seen in the past, Julie. Yeah, and we can see it even just represented as you look across the audience as well. Um, the lack of familiar faces in terms of business leaders and, uh, and world leaders, to your point too. Matthew, very quickly, the, the speech itself was delayed by what the Kremlin described as a massive cyber attack. It just not necessarily surprised me, but admitting this right before an event where President Putin set to uh, showcase and talk about the economy and, and beyond. I just wonder whether perhaps it's better to be honest in these situations than allow perhaps speculation that it had something to do with President Putin himself. There's been a lot of questions being asked about his health, about his body language, about what's actually going on with him. Any comment to make on that? Um, well, I mean, it could well have been a cyber attack, couldn't it? I mean, they said right. it was. Um, and I expect that Russia is, I, ex I expect that Russia is uh, the target of, you know, cyber attackers, whether they're government or, or, or non-state actors, um, because of its actions in the region, specifically over, over, over Ukraine. So that's definitely a possibility. But you're right, there has been a lot of speculation about Vladimir Putin's health. Um, it is just speculation, though. Um, until we see any firm evidence of that or get any confirmation of it, you know, it, it's very hard to, to do anything except acknowledge that there is this, this rumour going around that he's not altogether himself. Although, you know, to my eye, he looks pretty, pretty healthy from what I've seen of him, of him on television uh, over the past couple of weeks. Actually, I saw him in person in May and he looked absolutely fine uh, in, um, in, uh, in Moscow. Um, you know, but, um, you know, we'll see. Um, it's it's, a, it's a definitely a very interesting situation that we're going to continue to watch closely. Yeah, Matthew, great to get your perspective on all of these things, as always. Matthew Chance there. Thank you. OK, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Gripping testimony during Thursday's public hearing on the January 6th riot at the US Capitol. Lawmakers laid out the intense pressure that former President Donald Trump was exerting on his vice president to overturn the 2020 election result, even though Trump knew his strategy was illegal. Take a listen to some of what Trump was saying that day about Mike Pence. Mike Pence is going to have to come through for us. And if he doesn't, that will be a, a sad day for our country. If Mike Pence does the right thing, we win the election. I remember hearing the word wimp. Either he called him a wimp. I don't remember if he said, you are a wimp, you'll be a wimp. Wimp is the word I remember. It was a different tone than I'd heard him take um, with the vice president before. Do you remember what she said? Her father called him. The P word. 
The hearing resumes on Tuesday. And China has launched its third and most advanced aircraft carrier. The Fujian is capable of deploying a wider variety of planes than earlier carriers with more ammunition. Experts say combat systems are catching up with the United States and the new ship is meant to project China's rising power in the Pacific. Okay, straight ahead. How the e-commerce giant juggles fraying supply chains with rising prices. And hooked on crypto, we'll hear from a rehab center where they're bracing themselves to treat investors facing financial ruin. Stay with us. That's all coming up. Welcome back to First Move. Revlon, the 90-year-old cosmetics giant, has filed for bankruptcy protection, blaming supply chain disruptions and pricing pressures. It's a snapshot of the ongoing global challenges that businesses of all shapes and sizes are facing, including our next guest, online retailer Boxed, often dubbed Costco for millennials, also provides its technology and software to other e-commerce businesses. And I'm glad to say the CEO and co-founder of Boxed, Che Huang, joins us now. Che, always fantastic to have you on the show. It's not the only piece of your business, but it is a big piece. Much of what you sell is considered essential items, be they food or, or non-food, which in this kind of environment, I think helps, but it doesn't lessen the challenges. Tell us what you're seeing. How hard is it? Yeah, it's really um, uh, quite an interesting time for everyone in the mm. retail industry. You know, Luckily, most of what we sell, uh, as you just mentioned, is not discretionary, so they are essentials. But even within essentials, you're going to see kind of perhaps history repeat itself. And in previous recessionary environments, you've seen the consumer either trade down to hard discounters, uh, to dollar stores, or trade up in terms of quantity so they can save in bulk. So uh, we're kind of looking at those trends. And even within the same channel, we're, we've also got our eye on private brands. So when the shelves were bare, uh, back in the height of the pandemic, um, folks were testing some private brand. And so we're seeing that, hey, if prices are better on the private brand, uh, will we see some trading uh, over to that uh, side of the house as well. There's so much in that. And that's such a great point. You either trade down to less expensive items or you you buy less. Or if you have enough money, you buy in bulk and you make savings that way, which again plays to the strengths of your business. Um, are you already seeing that? Are you already seeing perhaps new customers that are, are looking for greater bargains, looking to buy in bulk where perhaps they haven't before? And also to your point, are you already seeing people switch to to different labels, home brands? Yeah, so we've always had a very robust private brand. So we've got our eye on what that trend looks like now as the um, kind of warning signals in the economy begin to pick right. up. When you also look at the different customers, you're seeing kind of sequential growth in our you know active customer account. Um, but again, I think what you're really going to look out for are kind of what the trends are in these coming months as these retailers, including us, uh, begin to report these trends. Are you also raising prices? Because there's obvious ways that you can go about this. You can talk to your suppliers and say, come on, guys, we have to negotiate. You can't raise your prices that much. Um, I know you've also struck deals with FedEx to try and lower transport costs. What is it ultimately meaning for the, for the consumers that, that come to your, to your website? Are you having to charge higher prices in which specific areas? So, Julia, definitely when the suppliers come, I say exactly that. Um, uh, probably <laughs> sure. as a direct vote, I'm like, hey, guys. You know, definitely um, uh, it's tough time for our consumers. So uh, what do you what do you've got for us? And so uh, it's a game of pennies. You know, at the moment, uh, we have a great relationship with uh, with FedEx. Um, we're hoping that lowers our transportation costs this year, uh, thereby lowering our cost to serve the customer. So that's a big part of e-commerce in general. But you're exactly right. You know, when the big consumer packaged goods companies of the world come on site, 
we tell them, hey, okay, perhaps uh, uh, you are raising that price, but show us kind of what goes into that input price. Show, show us what goes into mm. that price increase. And if it doesn't pass the sniff check, I think then we begin to push back. You know, we've tried to absorb as much of that cost as possible, but you're definitely seeing kind of industry, uh, you know, retailers across industries pass that along to the, cu to the customer and the consumer. Um, so you're kind of starting to see that pain uh, uh, on that customer. The challenge with this economy, too, is there's the demand side question over how long consumers can hold up and what their behavior does. But there's also been this ongoing issue of supply chains and reopening and, of course, China with its lockdowns, too. What's your sense of where we are in the recovery in terms of supply chains, which should also help ease some of the pricing pressures when we eventually see all of that unwind? So um, uh, if kind of inflationary pressure by itself wasn't enough, then of course you have supply chain to deal with. And so yeah. it's created a, a lot of kind of um, uh, challenges for the industry. I think everything in life uh, uh, is relatively kind of, um, uh, I guess, uh, it, well, is relative. So when you look at supply chain challenges today versus, say, at the height of the pandemic, um, I don't think anyone in the, in the industry can say it's as bad as it was back then. But at the same time, surely this is not kind of um, uh, smooth sailing blue ocean times as well. So uh, we're seeing kind of a good recovery there. Um, but you're seeing roving kind of supply chain disruptions. Of course, you guys have covered it as well, uh, you know, when it comes to the formula supply chain disruption. Now it's going into feminine care products. So you're seeing these pockets of disruption over and over again. It's almost like whack-a-mole at the moment. Yeah, and it's so tough for a central bank that's trying to calibrate policy based on all of these challenges and kinks, because you never know whether you're doing too much or too little, depending on what's easing and when and how quickly it eases. Um, I want to talk about some of the valuations in, in the tech sector in particular. And you as a company that literally went public last year as a special purpose um, uh, vehicle, use a specific type. We've now seen a shakedown in many of the valuations. You've been incredibly resilient, I think, over that period. What do you see going on more broadly in terms of, of investors? Um, yeah. So definitely a changing of the paradigm. I, I think folks are looking at uh, uh, all the different kind of um, uh, warning signals when it comes to recession. And also, you know, technology, unfortunately, is getting hit first. And so um, we've been a part of that group. So we went from one of the highest performing uh, public debuts in all right. of 2021 across the country um, till now. Um, so we think that that severe dislocation in our uh, share price isn't re really reflective of the future of our momentum and where we're going to go. Um, but at the same time, uh, it's no secret that the entire tech sector is under pressure. Um, but we also think it's a buying opportunity. So I bought twice now. So once when we first went public, I also we just filed the the, the form where um, we disclosed that I bought again. Uh, you know, other director has bought. So we think it, uh, it's quite a, a good uh, uh, entry price uh, and, you know, putting our money where where my mouth is. Yes, I was about to say, if you didn't say it, I was. Um, tech also at the core of your business, because it's not just about retail, it's about the operations that you use, the autonomous technologies, all the things that you've adapted to make your business more efficient that you're selling on now to others. How are those conversations going? Because in these times, you know, decisions over big investments like that kind of technology um, sometimes get sacrificed. Are you still having those conversations? And is that still going to be a fundamental driver of the business over the next let's say 12 to 18 months in your mind? So that's, that is an incredibly astute point. And I would, have, I would have had a different answer several years ago before the pandemic where e-commerce and these technologies were nice to have, not a need to have. But you can't uh, have any executive from, from any retailer come onto your show and say with a straight face that it's not a need to have anymore um, or, mm. or that it's, it, it's just a nice to have. 
um, whether it's just servicing that customer in a better way or even uh, contending with some of these supply chain challenges, uh, some of the labor challenges with automation. All these things are su such salient points in the economy and the world today that uh, we're still having robust conversations uh, on that side of the house, which is a high gross margin side of the house. Yeah, exactly. People don't have the luxury of uh, optionality on this. It's a necessity if you want to be uh, and run an efficient business. Jake, great to chat to you, as always. We'll speak to you soon. Thank you for your time. The CEO of Box there. All right, so to come. An Italian stallion with some serious horsepower, but will the EV version be equally supercharged? Ferrari CEO, up next. A very, very cute little boy there ringing the bell at the New York Stock Exchange. He must be one of the youngest. Looking a little confused, but there is a bit of relief on the global markets after this week's not-so-magical misery tour for investors. The bull's not ready to live and let die with the Nasdaq. And the S&P seeing a bit of green after the S&P 500's 6% slump so far this week. The Nasdaq and the S&P hitting their lowest levels since late 2020 as well. It's a big options expiration day in the United States, which could positively affect trading too. So buying some stocks back against that. Another potential pick-me-up, a firmer picture on global bond markets, US and European bond yields easing across the board. European bond markets reacting positively, it seems, to the ECB's anti-fragmentation focus. The European Central Bank promising this week to use new tools to bring down soaring yields in certain member countries. And with apologies to Paul McCartney, who turns 80 years young this weekend, it has been a long, winding and unprofitable road for global investors this week. Happy birthday, Sir Paul. And here's hoping the bulls gets back on their feet soon. Yes, we did our best. If you missed the puns there, I gave it to you. All right, now shifting gears. Drivers, start your engines. Ferrari is revving up, announcing more than a dozen new launches through 2026, including a few notable, noticeable firsts. Its first SUV and its first fully electric model. The luxury car maker has also big plans to make 40% of its cars electric by 2030. It's full speed ahead with growth, but drivers should expect some new prices around the bend too, as Ferrari deals with the inflationary pressures that other businesses are dealing with too. Joining us now is Benedetto Vigna. He's the CEO of Ferrari. So fantastic to have you on the show. It's a hugely exciting period, I think, for the brand, whether it's the technology transition, it's the broader industry transition. And of course, as I mentioned, the first EV in 2025. I want to start there. What do Ferrari customers want from an EV vehicle? Thank you. This is very, very good question. I think the, all the customers from Ferrari are different. We address them one one and they, they, there are customers that prefer EV, some other customers that prefer hybrid, some other customers that prefer still the ICE. So we are ready by 26, by 2030 to offer the three kind of uh, propulsion. So by 26, we will have uh, the electric starting in the range of 5%, while the bulk will still be ICE. And then in 2030, we will have 40% hybrid, 40% electric, and 20% uh, ICE. We are ready to address all the customer needs so that we can provide them unique driving emotions. Oh, we're going to come back to that point about emotions because I do think that's incredibly important. But what I did spot was even in 2030, 60% 
of your cars is still going to be ICE, internal combustion, as you mentioned, or, or hybrid. Is this a case of hedging your bets or is this more about a traditional Ferrari? People love the growl. They want the power. They want the speed. I'm trying to imagine a Ferrari customer waiting at a charging point for three hours in a queue to charge their vehicle. And somehow I can't picture it. Are you hedging your bets on EV? No, 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 no. We are uh, we are leading always uh, the let's say the, we are using always leading edge technologies. We want to lead the race. We started to use electric engine for our racing team in 2009. So this is uh, already 13 years that we are in this uh, in this electric uh, transition uh, race. It's nothing new for us. Here we are. Uh, we want to offer different kind of engine for different kind of Ferrari. Our product strategy is really. Uh, let's say clean and lean, different Ferrari for different Ferraristi, different Ferrari for different moments. We provide the different engine and they will pick up the one that uh, they will enjoy more in terms of emotion, in terms of experience. This is our key point. On your Capital Markets Day, and I, I read your speech and I looked at a lot of the numbers, but what stood out for me was the point that you've made twice now, which is this emotional experience that driving a Ferrari gives somebody. How do you ensure, and it goes back, I think, to the first question I asked, that you ensure that that emotional experience is the same whether somebody's driving a combustion engine or an EV vehicle or a hybrid? Is it about speed? Is it about sound? What gives the driver that emotional experience? And I guess it's what's that you've said is bringing on new customers, 25% new customers. Who are those customers and, and what is that emotional experience? Can you define it? Okay, the customers are coming from all over the world. We had the good grow in all of the region because we are selling in, uh, in all the countries. And uh, we have uh, uh, the, cast the age, the average age of the new customer is eight years younger. And we wow. see equal traction on this customer base yeah, of ICE and hybrid. And this is something really, I would say, a, a big, a big achievement after the last capital market day. It was in uh, in 2018. So it's, um, uh, let's say, the, the the offer, the fact that we want to offer unique experience. It means that we want to combine different performances from the car, and we want to combine them in a unique way because people think that the performance is only linear acceleration. That's not true. It's about linear. It's about a lateral acceleration. It's about a braking experience. It's about sound. It's about also the gearbox, the way it all fits in. This is the unique Ferrari way. It's not just to get in a car and to go straight, to go fast in the straight line. It's a combination of all these things. And for our electric car, for our hybrid car, for our IC car, well, all this will fit in a unique and distinctive way. These are the key words of our, of our car. So younger, cleaner, leaner. Look, I love how I have a new phrase for you. Um, let's, let's talk about price it's and pressure. It's a good one. <laughs> I know, you can use it. <laughs> for the bargain price of a Ferrari, sir. Um, you've raised prices. By about... <laughs> Quick, say that again in case it was you. Do you yes. have a Ferrari? Do you have a Ferrari? <laughs> no. Because we see a lot of ladies coming to the Ferrari world. We see also an increase of our customer base in the ladies. Our uh, interest in the, in the ladies' world and women's world is, is growing a lot. So younger, I would say also to add the dimension that we have more, more women getting in love with our Ferrari. Yay! I'm not saying I don't love them. It's the case of affording it. <laughs> Speaking of affording Come it. Come on. I know, it's a work in progress. Um, you've raised prices 
by 2%, I believe. And you've talked about a new pricing model as the new models come out. Talk to me about current pricing pressures. Is a 2% price rise enough to cover the rising cost or are the margins big enough? And what does pricing adjustments in future, what, what do they look like? What is the thinking? Uh, so, so far, it has been good enough. I mean, if you see the result, we've mm. been able to achieve uh, all what all the promises we gave four years ago in the capital market day. In the, in the future, clearly, the, the pricing is a lever we want to use to get more value from the innovation we bring to the market. And here I'm referring to all the new models, also because we have to consider what is uh, the, we, we, we are carefully looking at what is happening on the market in terms of uh, inflation on the raw material mm. and on, uh, let's say, on the energy cost. But clearly, let me say, we will value properly the innovation, the experience, the emotion that we provide to our customer. This is true for all the new product, and we will also address uh, with the existing product offer. So it was great to chat to you. I will continue saving. You can continue uh, thinking about my offer Thank of a free you. one. We have a, we have a wonderful <laughs> car for you. So if you come here to Maranello, you can select, we can personalize because all our cars are specific for each customer. Fantastic. I think you will enjoy. I'm sure I will, sir. We shall reconvene on that. Great to chat to you. We will. See you. you too. <laughs> Thank nice you. Nice meeting you. Bye-bye. Bye. The CEO of Ferrari there. Yes, we love cars. Okay, after the break. Broken by Bitcoin. Drugs, alcohol, gambling, now add crypto to a list of addictions which can cost you your money, your friends, and even your job. We'll discuss next. Welcome back to First Move. Instagram memes of megabuck bank statements, private jets, and laser eyes once showcased the lavish lifestyles and success of the crypto-rich. But as the value of digital currencies like Bitcoin, Ether and others collapse, mocking memes now point to vanishing fortunes as amateur investors suffer. Democratizing access to finance via easy-to-use apps like Robinhood and Coinbase can be great when markets are rising, but also education, trading tips and efficient regulations suddenly matter that much more when markets are falling. And that also separates more seasoned traders, perhaps, from those who often have so much more to lose. They might experience an emotional roller coaster of euphoric highs and then crushing lows and a sense of desperation, much like victims of gambling, drugs or alcohol. Well, now therapists are bracing for an influx of people seeking help for so-called crypto addiction. Castle Craig Hospital in Scotland treats just that. The residential rehab centre is warning getting hooked can destroy your life. Tony Marini is senior specialist therapist there and he joins us now. Tony, we're really great to have your expertise on the show today. How common a problem is crypto addiction and do you class it as what we've seen in the past as, as gambling? So, yeah, absolutely. The... Uh how I see this is that, you know, crypto um, is definitely gambling. We, it's not regulated in any way. Uh, and so straight away, you're, you're gambling, whether that site is going to still be there in a month or two. We had uh, somebody in that invested all of their pension and then two months later, the, the platform disappeared. And because it's not regulated, there was really nothing that they could do about it. Um, 
the <clears throat> I mean, the other thing is it's it's where it takes you. You know, it's that highly fulfilling stage at the beginning. You know, that excitement. You know, that fantasizing about buying things, the interaction with um, other other traders. Um, but once we get into that risky use, it's that it's what it does to us emotionally. So you know, the the social anxiety, self confidence, self esteem, self worth down. Um, we've even seen a lot of people physically, you know, um, uh, coming withdrawn from it. You know, my first um, uh, patient was in 2016, um, um. and more and more since then have come through the door. So um, we've had in just this half of the year coming up for 180 different people um, with different addictions through crypto. What we're finding the people who just got a guy just just arrived back um, that was here three years ago for drugs and alcohol um, got into uh, trading in crypto in December last year made five hundred and fifty thousand pounds and um, that took him back to the drugs and alcohol okay. and lost um, every single penny that he had made on that um, this is definitely Gambling, when you go into, you know, you have to remember not everybody's going to be addicted to drugs and alcohol, just as everybody's not going to be addicted to gambling. So not everybody's going to be addicted to the crypto um, currencies. But if you think about it, you know, there's millions of people trading now, millions of people. So even if it's a percentage, you know, it's ruining a lot of people's lives. What, we, what we're seeing. 99 okay. people are losing money where one person's making money. So there's going to be big problems with this. Tony, I mean, you've mentioned so many cases there and there's, there was so much in there. I just wanted to stop you for a second because <laughs> I, think what you, I think what you're suggesting is that if you're vulnerable to addiction of any form, then the, emo the emotional roller coaster, particularly the highs, is going to be alluring. And it seems what you've seen is that one addiction can lead to another and it can take people back down a path, perhaps of some addiction that they've managed to get over for a period of time, like drugs and alcohol. Um, an incredibly important warning. Um, I think there'll be people watching that perhaps recognize some of the addictive qualities in themselves when they're trading this and it doesn't even have to be crypto in this sense it can be other things what are the warning signs tony for people around them perhaps if not themselves to recognize that they're addicted to something and they're going down a dangerous path absolutely i mean you know probably friends and family will notice it more than the actual person that's right. in the throes of this you know to start with you know it's exciting it's simple to use so it's highly rewarding and stimulating. But then we, we start to, to see that more risky use and people start to become irritable. You know, they're posting things and searching for things constantly, frequently checking um, their phone, their computer, mm. um, comparing themselves to others. What happens is they start to build up the negative emotions so their self-confidence, their self-esteem, self-worth um, are down. So it impacts, you know, family, it impacts their work, it impacts them financially. And that's, that's when we're starting to get into, you know, crossing that line into the 
the mental obsession with it, that's when we start getting into that desperation stage, the frantic behavior. And that's what we're seeing is, you know, people, you know, especially lately, you know, with the crash and everything, people are, are swapping into other things. Now, um, maybe different coins, mm. you know, different cryptos. Or, Tony? Yes. What happens if people can't afford the kind of therapy that you provide? And, know. you know, the reason why you're there is because you have personal experience of, of addiction. And, and now you're perhaps the best kind of therapist because you understand what people are going through and you've, you've come out the other side. If people can't afford the kind of therapy or the hospital, particularly to the point that you made about the, the pensioner that, that lost yeah. their pension savings. I mean, I can't imagine what, what that kind of person's going through. Um, what are the basic things that, that people okay. can perhaps do to help themselves? Yeah, so, I mean, where this takes you to, um, you know, is is the complete dependency and it's suicidal ideations, right. you know. I've seen many, many people with this. So getting help with, you know, either an addiction specialist in, in therapy, you know, which, you know, you can have one-to-one -one and it's not too, too expensive. But there's also you know, Gamblers Anonymous out there, which is free, mm. you know. Um, and what we're finding, I'm quite heavily into to helping in GA. And uh, what we're finding is there's a lot more people coming with the crypto addiction. Obviously, they've lost lots of money, so they yeah. can't afford to come to a rehab like this. So, you know, going into, you know, um, GA, which um, gives us a platform to actually express what's going on for us. You know, and we can have that identification from others that have gone through similar similar things. But there's also help, you know, there for friends and family of the addict and, you know, gammon on and stuff, you know, because that that addict might be in denial about, you know, what you know, what's going on in their life. They're not in reality. No, it's the escape right. from reality. Um, that's that that's, that's where the you know, core. addiction takes. Absolutely. Tony. Tony, we're going to yes. get you back on because we've only just begun this conversation, but we've run out of time. You're going to come back and talk to us more, please. And I think the bottom line there was ask for help. And we'll, we'll tweet out some numbers as well. Yeah. Tony, Excellent. great to chat to you. Thank you. Tony Marina, Senior you. Specialist Therapist at Castle Craig Hospital. So we'll, we'll reconvene on this conversation, I promise. More First Move after the break. Welcome back to First Move. The war in Ukraine, soaring inflation and the ongoing impact of climate change just adding to fears of food insecurity in Africa, where around 80 percent of food that people eat is imported. Now, the founder and CEO of Nigeria's Boer Group says it's time for countries to collaborate in developing Africa's own food value chain. As Eleni Jokos reports for today's Connecting Africa. We've spoken during the pandemic and I know you were one of the, the voices, you know, pushing the opportunities for Africa because so many vulnerabilities and inequalities came to the fore. So now we're getting onto a path of recovery and we're feeling like we're kind of getting there and then boom, well, we'll geopolitical the, issues. Yeah, what, what did you think when that happened? <laughs> you know, it was quite a, a shock, you know, because the world, a lot of issues. And for us in Africa, this kind of issues Actually, uh, Africa suffers most in anything, you know, like this. Like so inflation, inflation, food insecurity, high prices, food insecurity all of that. Of exactly. So for us, it's, it's, it's a big issue. And as I said again, you know, I mean, 
with the world reeling from the COVID-19 and just coming out of it and then this. So at the end of the day, it's a big issue. So what are you going to do to solve some of these issues? Because well, I know you're a problem solver <laughs> and you're across many industries. <laughs> it's, 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 it's part of the problem really, uh, Eleni, is the fact that Africa, we import most of what we consume, especially food. Africa imports almost 80% of what we consume. And some of these imports are food items, you know. We, Africa imported over 55 million tons of wheat, for example, last year. So we have seen a situation where the price of wheat, for example, has uh, gone up from, say, average of $250 per ton to almost $600 per ton, meaning that it has doubled. And Africa, you know, relies heavily on Ukrainian and Russian wheat. We so what does that do to your Basta business then? How is it your inputs? Because now your inputs it's, have it's, increased yeah, dramatically. It is, it, is, it, is, it is an issue, you know, because the problem is one, we import these items, which means, you know, we have to source for the foreign exchange. Prices have doubled. And then the purchasing power, because if you import and the price is double, what do you do? You have to increase our prices. So inflation. And a lot of the people cannot really afford that. So we are seeing a decrease in terms of production, you know, processing and also uh, consumption. And that is a big issue. That is why I keep saying that, you know, we have to look inwards. We have to really do as much as we can to add value to what we have. We have to increase, you know, production for food security, for the food security of the continent. Okay, and that just about wraps up the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next, and I'll see you on Monday. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.